0: I'm a nearly lifelong Oregonian who's had the great fortune of living in both the northern and southern areas of the state, from metropolitan Portland to rural Klamath Falls. And while both cities are quite different geographically, these differences are also what define the spirit of Oregon, the coming together of diverse cultures thriving amidst unquestionably rugged natural beauty. Perhaps you're a lover of early movie musicals like me. To best describe my transition from city to country life, I have joked that my moving to Klamath Falls was akin to the famous Howard Keel Jane Powell movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. (laughs) As in, my Southern Oregon-bred husband threw me over his shoulder and carted me across Willamette Pass to a farm filled with goats, cows, chickens, and children, where the glorious, gorgeous horizon was a kiss between California and Oregon. Yes, that's more or less how it happened. (laughs) I've also been fortunate to travel and perform across the world. But because of my wonderfully weird Oregonian life, I forged and cultivated friendships and collaborations with a diverse range of other artists who either grew up in Oregon or felt the call of the wild to move to the Pacific Northwest. Today's episode is a very special example of one such collaboration. As you'll hear, it was filmed live in the middle of a historic park in Klamath Falls, Oregon, as part of the In a Landscape Classical Music in the Wild concert series. I'll tell you more about the series in the episode, as well as the story of a woman whose fortitude, sense of devotion, and vision for the people and landscapes that define our great state were truly unparalleled. She exemplifies the Oregon State motto, She flies with her own wings. During the recording of this episode, something so categorically Oregon happened, and the blue sky shifted suddenly and briefly but forcibly wept upon the audience. (laughs) Nothing like a little Oregon rain. But the show went on because there couldn't have been a more fitting way to fuse art with nature in that moment. Enjoy. Hello everyone. To many, the rugged Oregon countryside is a thing of great wonder and mystery. Descriptions abound of covered wagons pulled by oxen and manned by weary, obsessively determined pioneers finally descending upon the lush green valleys, majestic mountains, and fertile coastal region thanks to cinematic retellings and digital renderings. Certainly, if you were a kid in Oregon during the 70s and 80s, you will never forget those magic 20 to 30-ish minutes when you played the Oregon Trail video game in the school's computer lab. Am I right? Anyone remember the Oregon Trail game? I certainly do. You were equal parts thrilled that you got to play games during class, blithely engaged in critically important historical and educational content but also that you could buy and trade provisions, hunt for wild animals, and traverse rivers with a push of a button. Exciting! And never before had so many third graders learned the word dysentery and been able to use it in a sentence with context. Terrifying, right? The state of Oregon has been home to resilient, tenacious, assiduous people for thousands of years. Yes, thousands when indigenous peoples first inhabited the land 13,000 years ago, according to archeological finds. By the 16th century, Oregon was home to many tribes, including the Bannock, Shasta, Chinook, Kalapuya, Klamath, Malala, Nez Perce, Taklima, and Umpqua. The Oregon Trail, indeed, brought many new settlers to the region, starting in 1842. And the Oregon Territory was officially organized in 1848 after a border was established along the 49th Parallel, dividing British North America and the United States. Thousands of settlers rushed to the area when nearly 7,500 land patents were issued under the Donation Land Claim Act of 1850, but at great price to Indigenous peoples who were denied access to land through the act and forced to relocate. A grievous part of Oregon's multifaceted history. Oregon State was officially admitted to the Union on February 14, 1859. But I'm not here to tell you the story of how the West was won or lost by industrious early settlers. No, I'm here to tell you the story of one woman who captured the very beauty that surrounds us today, nestled along the shore of Klamath Lake in Moore Park during those foundling years of Oregon. As a fearless pioneer scenic photographer and keenly perceptive portrait photographer, she captured over 2000 stirring images that serve as a lasting reminder of her singular artistry and the history of this community from a woman's eye through a woman's lens. This, listeners, is a very special mid-season episode of the Virtuosa Society podcast, delivered and recorded in front of a live audience in the very location today's story takes place, in rural southern Oregon in Klamath Falls. This has been my hometown for 18 years now. Today's broadcast is in partnership with my longtime friend and colleague, Hunter Nowak, and his remarkable In a Landscape concerts, which bring classical music into the wild. That's why you're all here, right? It's been a treat to join Hunter in other remote Oregon locations for concerts throughout the years, and I'm thrilled to welcome him back to beautiful Klamath Falls and Moore Park. And I was elated when he suggested that I deliver Episode 5 to all of you here today. If this is your first introduction to the Virtuosa Society podcast, welcome! I'm Katie Harmon. My married name is Ebner, for those of you locals. And I'm your host and the founder of Virtuosa Society. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker, and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half my life now. I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate foundational experiences from which i built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women for women within the virtuosa society podcast i dive headfirst into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations born from various shared struggles between female creatives together we're unlocking the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood, beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and revelations that have released true creativity in women. All in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, non-linear lives. In a landscape audience, and those of you listening from wherever you get your podcasts, are you ready to unlock today's story? To 18-year-old Maud Baldwin, these natural surroundings held an inescapable pull, as well as refuge from an idle life. Indeed, it was a veritable playground for a burgeoning talent like hers. Having just barely turned 18 the summer of 1898, Maud gave no hesitation to walking away from the two years of studies she'd already completed at the Oregon State Normal School known today as Western Oregon State University in Monmouth, a stone's throw from the state's capital city of Salem. Once she acquired her first taste of photography, the quote-unquote normal course, as it was called, or classes meant to equip aspiring teachers in public schools, would cease to hold any interest. Instead, she decidedly returned home to Klamath County, 236 miles to the south, a wild landscape dotted with diverse natural beauty, miles and miles of farmland, fascinating people, and a newly burgeoning community. This would remain her home and the greatest love of her life. Here, she could capture life as it was happening in real time around her. Even if it meant venturing into wild landscapes to record the Klamath and Modoc tribes, loggers, farmers, the streets of Klamath Falls, railroads, recreation on the lake, all that might happen in any given day. Born Maude Evangeline Baldwin on August 8, 1878, she was the eldest and the only daughter among the four living children of George and Josephine Baldwin. She was most decidedly her father's favorite, and he took great care to ensure her economic well-being, as well as that of the community where he was rapidly climbing as a prominent business leader of considerable fortune and a popular political figure. Before becoming a respected Oregon State Senator from 1917 through the end of his life, George held a staggering number of leadership positions in the community, including county treasurer, county judge, deputy sheriff, superintendent of Klamath County Schools, as well as the first president of the local Chamber of Commerce, where he raised $100,000 to pay a bonus to the Southern Pacific Railroad if it reached Klamath Falls by 1907. That's the equivalent of nearly $3 million today. (laughs) Wow. Although Klamath Falls didn't have its first railway stop until two years later in 1909, the first freight to arrive via railroad was an order for the Baldwin Hotel, the prize jewel of the Baldwin family of businesses. Not to be forgotten was Maude's formidable mother, Josephine, who in addition to raising four imaginative, sociable, and active children and supporting her husband's businesses and his political endeavors, was a leading citizen in the newly minted Klamath Falls and a charter member of nearly every club and organization in the town's formative years. Maude was born just four years after George's first tinsmithing business was established on the east bank of the Link River, not far from where we are right now. After rapidly growing to a two-story hardware store in the heart of town, George dreamed of a bigger empire. In 1907, in anticipation of that first railway stop in Klamath Falls, he built a large four-story structure on a steep hillside of hard volcanic rock. Because of its location, it was built with longer floors at higher stories, like steps. For a while, he operated his successful hardware store on the ground floor, and the other three floors contained offices, some of which were combined with apartments. But thanks to that first railway shipment in, in 1909, the Baldwin Block, as it was known to locals, was remodeled and rebranded into the Baldwin Hotel, complete with modern electricity and indoor plumbing first-class accommodations for people who were expecting candles and chamber pots especially in such a remote area. To Maud, their beloved daughter, George and Josephine gave the entire fourth floor of the hotel to establish a photography studio and film developing space. To them and the community, Maud had something rare. What was once a hobby had blossomed into a respected business, something her industrious parents could certainly get behind. While no one knows exactly what sparked Maude's interest in photography, her prowess and passion was undeniable, as was her open, sincere, and disarming magnetism, not something people expected from a young woman of her social standing. In a fantastic article about Maude in 1859, Oregon's magazine, author Kimberly Boker said it best, moments of beauty, strength, and vulnerability are imprinted in her images. It was a different era that Maud Baldwin lived in. She bore witness to the turning of a new century, the altering of traditions, the laying of iron tracks on the earth and the catapulting of airplanes into the sky, and the end of many previous beginnings. She recorded this reality with her cameras and created the world not just by what she saw, but how she saw it. Her images translate timelessness, echoed in the eyes of children and in the ripples of the water while simultaneously documenting a world now past. She lived the extremes during a period of transition, as a woman who owned a business when few women did, as a photographer who ventured into places beyond social expectation. A compelling historical figure behind the lens, Baldwin offered meaning through her images within the darkness and illumination of light. In one of her earliest expeditions, after leaving Monmouth merely months before, Mott set forth under a midsummer sun in 1898 to Crater Lake and Pelican Bay with a group of friends. Although Eastman and Kodak had famously created cameras that were far more portable than the cumbersome early models, Maude was unfettered and unfazed by her lack of the latest advancement in technology and happily hauled around her large-view camera, complete with a black cloth to block the light and a tripod to steady the apparatus. In her bags were glass negatives, thick and fragile. As the traveling party camped along Crater Lake, Maud daringly climbed over the rocks near the edge, and with her nimble fingers assembling the camera, quickly captured a delightfully composed panoramic view of her friends, piled into an early automobile with a top down. In the background are the origins of what will eventually, stone by stone, become the magnificent Crater Lake Lodge. But only one doorway is evident and stones are littering the lawn. And better yet, along the horizon is a truly stunning view of Crater Lake. Pouring over the photo, I am in awe of Maud's terrific eye for composition and how it feels unaffected by the passage of time. And this was only the first of many intrepid photography expeditions to Crater Lake and other remote parts of the region. Others dared not go. It was part of her, biographer Harry Drew said, about Baldwin's connection to photography. She didn't just compose shots. Why would she take a three-day trip with pack burrows to Crater Lake? There would be no way she could ever know that she was probably the first woman to do that. She was the lady who could sit at a fine dinner and who was also comfortable tramping through the forest with burrows and equipment. Dirty and dusty and sweaty, and to some degree in a dangerous situation. It was a burning thing in Baldwin to leave a trail of her life, and that is what she was doing. This was deliberate. She was very aware these things would be passed away and never seen again. 1903 can be considered the beginning of the golden era of her photographic career. The following year, she began to mix her picture media by using the recently developed nitrate-based film stocks and finally advancing to one of the first really true portable cameras. With both photographic mediums at hand, potential for creation seemed endless to Maud, and only limited by a single factor—imagination. In 1905, Maud enrolled in the California College of Photography in Palo Alto, California to learn the latest in photographic technology with emphasis on doing portraits, more specifically with children. Children loved Maud. Her portraits of children and women were especially striking, allowing personality to jump from the film's image. In an article she wrote about her portrait photography, technique. In the photographic student magazine, she astutely said, having a long tube on the camera, I can be clear away from it while exposing the plate and the child has no idea there is a picture in the game. Be a child with him for the time being and play his little games. Here you can catch him in his cunning positions, in his innocent play. And you have something that will delight his mother and bring you an order from a well pleased patron, which is the best advertisement you can have. (laughs) This kind of empathy for her subjects, as well as her affable, adventurous, fun loving, and lest we forget, entrepreneurial nature, won her respect and acclaim. Her popularity and acceptance by those ranging from hobby fishermen and scrub brush farmers, indigenous female artisans, families of all sizes, and townsfolk of all social orders was uncanny. Her biographer pointed out, after all, she was a woman in a time when a person's rights, especially a woman's, was not necessarily something for general consideration. And yet, there... In the very middle of this solidly entrenched system was Maud, moving with her cameras in and out of every conceivable societal situation, being readily welcomed, befriended, and admired. Her astonishing ability to intermix, to be seen and heard, and to literally short-circuit the 19th century constraints is not known to have ever interrupted or adversely affected her daily life. On July 6, 1905, Maud opened her initial photography studio in the first two-story Baldwin hardware store, in partnership with her friend Hattie White, a portrait painter. The opening welcomed a fawning crowd of 100 people. With the Klamath Republican newspaper reporting, the main reception room at the studio was devoted exclusively to portraits and numberless views of the most beautiful and attractive scenes in the county and an entire day could well be spent in enjoying these works of art. Much favorable comment was heard in regard to the carbon photos, which were done on opal. Another room was devoted to relics, baskets, bows and arrows, beads, and other specimens of handiwork of the Klamaths. Some very fine photos of members of this tribe were shown. The collection of baskets is by far the largest and best in the county. In the big studio, which was appropriately decorated, dainty tables were set and refreshments were served by Mrs. Lizzie Houston, Vera Houston, Barbara Geller, and Hazel Geller. The Ford family furnished the music. The piano used was kindly loaned by Mr. Lineback. The walls of the room were arranged with large photos suitable for framing purposes, which Ms. Baldwin is making a specialty. She is recognized as one of the best view artists in the state. Ms. White is the portrait artist and has recently finished a course in one of the Eastern schools. These young ladies are making a good success in their work as they combine business ability with a thorough knowledge of their art. Maude's credibility and reputation as a photographer expanded well beyond the confines of such titles as woman photographer or simply local photographer. Indeed, she was firmly identified as a skilled photographer, statewide and on a national level. Due in large part to the fruits of her labor, Klamath County gained the nickname of Little Switzerland of America, drawing interest to the growing town and surrounding landscapes. Maude was soon hired by publications to traipse through the area in search of enticing, romantic views. Interestingly, on August 22nd, 1907, the Klamath Republican newspaper reported, "Miss Maude Baldwin went up to the Upper Lake this week for the purpose of securing additional views of this beautiful section. Miss Baldwin is establishing an enviable reputation as a scenic artist. Many of the views taken by her having been published all over the United States. Although they did much to make this Switzerland of America famous, Miss Baldwin has received practically none of the credit that is due her from those who made use of her work. As a hired photographer, now in her 30s, she scaled rocky ridges to secure images of lava beds and climbed to mountaintops to capture Tule Lake, Klamath Lake, and Odell Lake. She even photographed the historic day in 1909 when 1,200 people gathered at the depot as the railroad first came to Klamath Falls. That infamous shipment for the Baldwin Hotel. She reveled in recording the changes in transportation. From horses and dugout canoes, to white steamships on the lake, to automobiles and aeroplanes. I absolutely love an image she took of an elderly couple in a canoe with a steamship parked at a dock behind them. In her handwriting, it is inscribed in perfect cursive. Quote, the old and the new way. Maud also managed to balance being a multi-hyphenate long before Beyoncé and millennials made it a thing. Her interests and activities were as diverse and multifaceted as the breadth of subjects she so deftly captured. Her social life was robust, and she was a member of a long list of clubs and organizations, including the 500 Club, the Evangeline Lodge number 88, a local bridge club, the MMM Club, the Calcega Club, Pelican Club, the busy Aloha chapter of the Order of the Eastern Star, and in her later years, the Delphinians Club, a literary group whose local organization was known as the Delta Gamma. She would chaperone camping trips for the Campfire Girls and choreograph numerous gatherings for the many clubs that she belonged to. In 1907, she presented the guests of the 500 Club with score and partner cards that were photographs of Klamath scenery and other interesting objects. Mott even co-hosted a progressive New Year's Eve party in which an imaginary train took passengers on an excursion from the old year, 1907, to the new year, 1908. That's a train I'd love to ride. One of the self-portraits that is most often associated with Maud was taken expressly for the Order of the Eastern Star. The image, taken in Maud's fourth-floor studio, shows her boldly accessorized by a men's bow tie and top hat, while also wearing a tuxedo-esque jacket and skirt with an embroidered apron tied around her waist. The piece de resistance... She holds a pistol at her shoulder, with a barrel aiming toward the sky, and a stoic expression, giving a whiff of confidence. What an ensemble! <laughs> this shows commitment and dedication! Her extensive involvement in community endeavors most assuredly occupied the better part of her free time. It was during this time, in the midst of an already full calendar, that Maud also established a millinery shop as a secondary business. She likely obtained the materials she needed for her business from the family store, but her hats were custom orders and unsurprisingly, she was thus officially dubbed Klamath Falls's leading milliner. But by 1915, Maud kept being pulled from her photographic pursuits. Alongside her father, she dabbled in real estate and purchased her first automobile from one of her brothers to support his business, a 1920 Buick coupe. <laughs> and when the United States joined the Great War and citizens of Klamath Falls patriotically joined ranks, Maud dutifully turned her attention to the Red Cross, leaving even less time for photography. Little did she know how swiftly it would cease from her life altogether. In 1909, after her father George had been serving as state senator for the past two years, he developed a severe liver ailment that confined him to a hospital and then claimed his life on june 4, 1920. His death was a crushing blow to Maud. Her diary entries and the actions that accompanied her grief reflect a pain so deep and severe that she felt incapable of recovery. To compound the heartache and stress, Maud's mother, who had also been a stalwart supporter of Maud's civic and photographic endeavors, conjointly fell seriously ill due to a stroke potentially from the strain of the loss of her dear George. Unable to talk or walk, the once vibrant and active Josephine was completely reliant on Maud's care. At the age of 42, Maud was faced with a complete and uncontrollable change in her situation. She assumed the duties of hotel manager of the Baldwin Hotel, and with her mother, moved into room 221. There, she selflessly dedicated herself to the task of caring for her mother, generously giving Josephine the attention, love, and respect that Maud felt she deserved. In 1923, Maud had no choice but to relinquish control of the Baldwin Hotel to new owners, Mr. and Mrs. A.B. Moore. She simply didn't have the time to care for both the hotel and her ailing mother, But there was also a brief glimmer of hope that same year in the surprise of a budding romance. Maud met and was wholly smitten with Jean Campbell, a chef at the Little Grit Cafe, once located at the corner of Main and Pine Streets in downtown Klamath Falls. Sweetly, Jean would often visit with Maud in the small easement area of the Baldwin Hotel, and the immobilized Josephine had an approving twinkle in her eye whenever Jean would sit with her for a visit. But the romance was not to be. According to stories from those who once knew her, Jean informed her that he planned to move to Alaska and prospect for gold. As legend has it, he invited Maud, but she declined due to her duties at home. Thus, he decidedly moved on and never returned. And so the last open door to another life closed, and with it, in 1924, the cessation of all social contact and activities. The entire winter and spring of 1926 was spent with her mother, under the care of a physician at Lakeview, at the home of her brother Zim. In April, for reasons known only to Maud, she transferred the ownership of her personal property, including land and her 1920 Buick Coupe, to her mother, Josephine. While this act seems contrary to good sense, I mean, the transfer of property from and by a healthy daughter to an ailing and possibly dying mother? It was an ominous warning sign highlighting Maud's spiral from hope. On May 20th, 1926... They returned home to Klamath Falls. But within twenty four hours of their arrival, Maud would be found dead on the banks of the Link River. In a note left to Mrs. Catherine Wright, housekeeper at the Baldwin Hotel, Maud wrote her final words. Mrs. Wright, I am going insane and I cannot stand it. You will find me in the lake. Maud Maud drowned near where the swirling waters met Lake Iwana. She died in the same place as her birth and in the waters of the view she loved and captured most often. Coverage of Maud's passing was announced in the Evening Herald on May 22nd, 1926, and had an especially grief-stricken tone. The headline read, Maud Baldwin takes own life in belief she was losing her mind. Life spent in caring for mother comes to tragic end in waters of the Link River. Word kept from parent. The article began, culminating in a life of unselfish devotion. For those she loved, and believing the strain she was under would cause her to lose her mind, Miss Maudie Baldwin, 47, prominent resident of Klamath Falls, drowned herself in Link River after 8 o'clock last night. The article also noted that the body did not sink after almost 12 hours in the water, and it was a source of wonderment. Her body was found at almost the direct spot where she jumped into the water. Indeed, Maud had filled the pockets of her house dress with rocks from the Link River to descend into the depths. Resolved in death as in life. And in a very personal observation, most likely on the part of the unnamed author of the article, it closes with a sentiment her many friends here are of the unanimous opinion that the constant strain she was under had brought about a nervous breakdown, and that while she was temporarily despondent, she decided to end it all. While it isn't fair to presume to know Maud's struggles, thoughts, or motives over the years, and, but over the years, and after more science has come to light, quite literally, about the dangerous effects of early chemicals used in photo development, many have come to believe that Maude's early exposure to mercury could have contributed to a growing mental unease. But what is known for certain is that the light of an immensely talented and loving woman was extinguished midlife by a tidal wave of grief. And loss. A funeral was held for Maude the following Tuesday afternoon and the entire city paused as every establishment closed for a full two hours in honor of the photographer, the daughter, the sister, the business owner, the friend, and the role model. Much of what is known and preserved about Maud is thanks to Harry Drew, longtime director of the Klamath County Museum and Baldwin Hotel Museum and his exhaustive aim to memorialize Maud and her transformative gift to the county. In his beautiful biography of Maud, he said, Much like the ephemeral waters recorded in her romanticized photographs, she was and shall continue to remain an enigma. Maud was truly an individual far ahead of her time. She was able to move graciously through the barriers of social constraint, gaining widespread acceptance from all quarters through her unique devotion to the human condition and concern for equality. Maud as a young woman was beautifully alive and vibrant. She was a student of those things that surround us, the people the places, the awesome vestige of nature's abundance, and by design and for the sake of posterity, nurtured her own skills to learn the fledgling art of photography so that the events of her day might be forever preserved. In this task, she was successful. A romantic from another time, and in some senses a renegade, Maud's gift to the generations to come are her wonderfully ambitious and nostalgic photographs, which serve as an illustrative testimonial to her personal daring, conviction for realism, and art, and perhaps substantiation for the idealized notion of the Western character, proof of her very existence. In 2006... 100 years after Maud's heralded success, acclaimed and nationally award-winning photographer Mary Smothers had the genius idea to honor Maud by recreating 61 of her famous captures throughout the region for a glorious book titled Mary and Maud, A Century of Change. We actually have a copy of that book here. So if you're interested in looking at it during the concert, please, I absolutely heartily welcome you to do so and it's also available at the Klamath County Museum. It was just unheard of for a woman to do it in those days, and it was just amazing that she did it, said Mary, recalling Maud's versatility as a photographer in the field. It was the fact that she was so unique and willing to put in so much effort to get a particular picture. She worked hard at it. Mary felt a kindred connection to Maud. She became the staff photographer at Oregon Institute of Technology in Klamath Falls after completing her master's degree at Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, California in 1991. Very similar to Maud. And after having lived in five countries and traveled extensively and many others as a professional travel photographer, chief among her favorite subjects were Klamath Basin wildflowers, just like Maud. Although both Mary and Maud are no longer with us, their legacies live on, especially in the citizens of today's Klamath Falls community committed to capturing and preserving the beautiful na- natural heritage of the region and its people. And, of, and all of it serves as a loving tribute to Maud's truly visionary talent and admirable passion for capturing this, her beautiful home. Even in death, she chose to immerse in the place where her heart felt most free. Maud's story and legacy is yet another reminder that the heart of a woman is boundless in spite of barriers placed around it. To close out today's episode and to signal the start, of today's In a Landscape concert, Hunter and I will be performing a piece written by prolific, groundbreaking composer Florence Price, a featured virtuosa in Episode 3 of the podcast, which I highly encourage you to soak up her remarkable story and uh, the historic collaboration she had with famed contralto Marian Anderson. The Heart of a Woman was composed by Florence in 1941 crafted from an exquisitely truthful poem written by Georgia Douglas Johnson in 1918. The poem likens the expansive vision of a woman's heart to a bird soaring freely, just as Maud captured hundreds of times over the years. The poem reads, The heart of a woman goes forth with the dawn, As a lone bird softly winging so restlessly on afar o'er life's torrents, and veils does it roam. In the wake of those echoes, the heart calls home. The heart of a woman falls back with the night, and enters some alien cage in its plight, and tries to forget it has dreamed of the stars, while it breaks, 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 breaks on the sheltering bars. Florence Price made this poem her own, employing her distinct and celebrated musical language, which employs blue thirds and other melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic devices, creating a musical vision of the fulfillment that freedom brings. When Georgia wrote the poem in 1918, the crumbling of Maude's future hadn't fully consumed her and she still clung to hope through devotion. The same year, 3,000 miles away, Florence and Georgia battled growing racism in a Jim Crow South. And they still, too, clung to hope. And thousands more suffragette women waited anxiously for the right to vote in this country. This song speaks to every woman who has experienced the teetering balance of dreams and reality. (laughs) ¶¶
1: The heart of a woman goes forth with the dawn, as Breaks, 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 breaks on the sheltering.
0: Thank you for joining me for today's very special mid season episode. And if you're hearing this for a second time because you were in the audience for this In a Landscape concert, double thanks. (laughs) If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. My deepest thanks to my longtime friend and the genius artist behind In a Landscape, Hunter Nowak and the entire In a Landscape team for the honor and privilege of creating this episode in collaboration with IAL's mission to bring the arts into remote parts of the Pacific Northwest. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production, written and produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser, title music by Anna Landstrom.